Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Most of the year, when the weather lets us, my wife and I wind down on our front porch with a bourbon. We live out in the countryside, and for no particular reason, bourbon feels like the right choice as we watch the long grass waving on the hillsides and the birds shuttling back and forth between the far trees. Every so often, I'll suggest we change things up. Most of the year, when the weather lets us, my wife and I wind down on our front porch with a bourbon. We live out in the countryside, and for no particular reason, bourbon feels like the right choice as we watch the long grass waving on the hillsides and the birds shuttling back and forth between the far trees. Every so often, I'll suggest we change things up. Maybe a scotch or an Irish whiskey. Not really such a big change in the grand scheme of things. But my wife looks at me as though I've made some horrible faux pas, as though I've suggested a tumbler full of cotton candy vodka or bacon grease. Bourbon, she insists, that's what goes with the landscape. And she's not alone. As Reed Mittenbuehler points out in Bourbon Empire, the past and future of America's whiskey, bourbon is our native spirit. This is the fact that Kentucky Senator Jim Bunning affirmed in 2007 when he sponsored a bill to declare September National Bourbon Heritage Month. Bourbon, the bill stressed, captures the American values of, quote, family heritage, tradition, and deep-rooted legacy, end quote. Like most American icons, bourbon's true history isn't so rosy. It is, however, fascinating as Mittenbuehler shows us by tracing the spirit's place in every era of America's past, from the Whiskey Rebellion of 1791 to the Declaration of Independence for Bourbon, which wasn't passed until 1964, when Congress voted on a resolution deeming bourbon, in lackluster language, quote, a distinctive product of the United States, end quote. Yet here, too, Mittenbuehler finds a great story, about power brokers, corporate maneuvering, and a forgotten man named Louis Rosensteel, who is the reason we now have whiskeys aged over eight years. Mittenbuehler offers us a rich sense of the true heritage, tradition, and legacy behind the bourbon in our glasses, and it's as complexly American as the country itself. Scotch whiskey? Irish whiskey? My wife is certainly right. What was I thinking? Reed Mittenbuehler, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm very excited to talk about your book, Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of America's Whiskey. Uh, but before we get to it, I mean, as somebody who has a whiskey, oh, I'd say every night of the week, it just seems the American thing to do. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's one thing to be a, a kind of passionate drinker of bourbon. It's another thing to write an epic history uh, that begins with the colonialists and goes all the way up to the present, indeed, into the future of what American <laughs> whiskey might be. I'm wondering what it is that brought you to this project. Well, it started out 
just basically in a foodie sense, the kind of way that, you know, people geek out on wine or beer or, in my case, whiskey. Um, the way it really first started, I had just graduated college. I was in the military. Um, you know, I wasn't really that big of a drinker, but, you know, you kind of have to have your drink in the military. No one really drank whiskey. This is, this is around the year 2000. It still hadn't quite come into the full roar of its resurgent popularity where it's at now. And, you know, I kind of got a taste for it. And then, you know, you, you geek out on it the way you geek out on these things. And I wanted to read more about it. And there were some very good guides out there. And these guides all have, you know, a 10-page if, 10-page if um, mini history in the beginning. Um, and then they get right into the very, like a very literal description of whiskey. This is how it's made. And then they get into ratings and things like that. But I always like those history sections. Um, and, you know, you'd read around and people would say things like, well, this, this history, I mean, it's, you know, the history of whiskey is the history of America. And I was like, you know, they're right. And you could kind of see the elements of the story kind of shaping up with the whiskey rebellion and everything. But it never got more than a couple paragraphs in these books. I wanted to find more. And I was a fan of these micro histories like salt or cod, you know, where you take one little thing like an ugly fish, you know, like cod or a, a table condiment and you kind of look at capitalism or the history of a nation, you know, or something like that. I, and I was wondering if something like that existed for, for whiskey and it really, and it really didn't. And so I just started researching it just kind of as a hobby and it grew organically that way. My wife one day was like, you know, you should pitch this as a book. <laughs> so, so I did, and it just took on a life of its own. I think those books that grow out of a real kind of intellectual curiosity and enthusiasm, it, it somehow inflects the entire project, and you get a sense that the amount of research that you're doing in this book and the, the love that kind of infuses the entire enterprise is certainly right there from the opening pages. But I do have a, a really tough question for you to open with. All right. It's going to call into question the entire book project. So, so why do we need a book about the history of American whiskey when so many whiskeys on the shelf today just are chock full of history on their labels? <laughs> well, that... That's a great question because that was one of the, my favorite elements of the book is that the labels, oftentimes, the stories are just kind of made up or, you know, they're drawing on this frontier iconography that you, that you see if you look at any of them. And I wanted to use that kind of as a lens to explore American history, how we reimagine history, um, you know, how we cherry pick little bits and pieces of it to, uh, you know, kind of prop up ideas we have about ourselves. So, you know, whiskey, more so than so many other drinks, it kind of reflects, um, you know, we, we kind of use it as a mirror, uh, as a reflection of ourselves as Americans. And I, you see that with all this frontier iconography, like you've got all these, you know, settlers on bottles and things like that. And so, you know, a lot of those stories, you know, they're great tall tales, but then when you would kind of get behind them and look at the other tall tales, kind of, you know, just sort of hiding there in the shadows, those stories were even better. Those were the kind of real stories you get, you know, you've got the, the very inspiring story, but then a lot of times there's a little bit of this, this seedy element to it. Like, for instance, Daniel Boone, um, you know, helped settle Kentucky. And you hear, I hear this story of, you know, Boone going to Kentucky. But a big reason he went there is he was you know, escaping debt that he owed. He did later repay those debts. But those kinds of stories are always jumping up when you start to dig a little bit deeper into the history of this spirit and of the industry that grew up around it. Um, you know, not always the most comfortable sorts of things, 
But that's kind of what made it real for me, what made it really fun to read and kind of enlightening, both about the industry, the product, and uh, the nation where it all comes from. Yep, you you start us in right with uh, taking up, I guess, the, the biggest question you can ask about whiskey, which is, is it really America's native spirit? And there's a there's a great story that opens the book about well yeah sort of if you're looking in 1964. <laughs> well yeah yeah it's this this story of of lobbying, and you know I open that with that because when you start interviewing people in this industry and looking at it, it really is a very charming industry. It's full of you know these people that are dedicated to their craft. I mean just like the commercials, just like the advertisements kind of indicate, like all that is there. And it was really fun to meet all these people and learn about it. But then you flip the card over and there is that element that comes out of the fact that, you know, this is historically one of the more corrupt industries in American history. Um, You know, there are political scandals attached to it. Um, It tried to cartel, monopolize, you know, that sort of thing. And here you have in 1964, as you mentioned, this resolution uh, that passed went through Congress to declare bourbon a distinctive product of the United States. And when you first start getting into into this thing, you know, when you kind of start geeking out on it, you hear about this. And especially about 10 years ago, you'd always see it kind of misquoted as America's native spirit. And, you know, the advertisers like to see, you know, they kind of imagine it as a Valentine's Day, that Cong- you know, a Valentine's Day card that Congress gave to the spirit. Like, you know, this enshrines American values. It's, it's a lot of kind of pageantry behind it. Um, you know, it's very folksy. It's kind of, it's in soft focus. <laughs> and I started looking into the story behind the resolution, and it really was about this corporate titan named Louis Rosenstiel, who had been, you know, at one point indicted, all these never convicted on bootlegging charges. And I mean, this guy was a real, a real tough character. You know, apparently he had had connections to Meyer Lansky during Prohibition. You know, the, the bootleg of the gangster, and he had basically, um, he had really done a very good job forecasting what demand would be during the uh, the Korean War. He thought that they were going to, you know, the United States was going to suffer a whiskey shortage, so he ordered his distilleries to produce full blast, and he had these huge surpluses. And this resolution really came, in a lot of ways, out of the fact that he just had a whole bunch of this product he needed to sell. He was going to lose a ton of money um, when taxes came due after the eight-year bonding period. And so he started pushing all these things in Congress, and he was in these battles with these other corporate titans like Sam Bronfman at, at Seagram. And you know, this resolution was passed as trade protection so that it could open up overseas markets for him and protect his you know, product. And he was... It helped him become one of the richest men in America. So I kind of open that as a way to look at this idea of, you know, bourbon equals capitalism. When people say it's America's native spirit, which is kind of the nickname, that caused me to ask, well, what's that mean? Like, what's, what are we really founded on? What are the things that other people in the world feel really define America? And I was like, well, you know, business, capitalism, like these are really important parts of our, our heritage. And that's a great way to explore bourbon is, as a business. And and you have, you know, at multiple points in kind of the rise of industrialization and then the, the kind of rise of the mass corporation, you're tracing all of that. Um, but after you give us the, this opening sally where we, we start to see what it would mean to have a native spirit, you do take us back to the colonialists. And there's yeah. this idea that, that whiskey does have this native gesture that, that starts it as being you know, the, the drink of our country even before there is an America. 
Oh, are you speaking about the uh, the corn and, and, and Thor? That's exactly it versus yeah. the rum yeah. and, you know, all those English. Yeah. I mean, you know, for bourbon and the book discusses all of America, you know, different styles of American whiskey. But it. Um, you still there? Yes, indeed. I am. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, it discusses um, you know, all these different styles, but we look at, you know, bourbon as sort of the preeminent spirit. And the base of bourbon is corn. You know, it's primarily made of corn. And the first instance where, you know, historians think corn was actually distilled, there's a little bit of debate about this, which we explain, you know, in the book. But there's this colonist just upstream from Jamestown, George Thorpe, and he's sent to America. He is a new world fortune seeker um, looking for ways to, to, to make money for the empire. And one of the first things that catches his eye is corn. He had looked at silk. He had looked at, you know, tobacco, all these other crops. And he sees this grain and, um, you know, is looking for a way to, he was looking for substitutes for his, his precious English beer. And he had a still and he probably, you know, distilled this corn beer that he had made into a liquor. And, um, it's this great story I felt of a new world fortune seeker looking for this grain or, you know, looking for a way to make money. And it stumbles on this grain and happens to be the same thing that is the base of this bourbon that, that we drink. Um, so yeah, that, and I thought that was a great way to introduce the story because, you know, you see all these ways to, you know, we kind of get into how alcohol was used, um, in trading negotiations with native Americans. And a lot of cases was, you know, a lot of land was taken taken for just a few barrels of you know different kinds of spirits. It could be rum, it could be a grain based spirit, or whatever. So I thought that was an interesting story to open with. Oh, it's a great story, and and it, it's right there at the beginning that you start to see this equation that that highlights one of the themes of your book, which you've already mentioned, which is you know whiskey as a kind of capital. And I, I think one of the things that made perfect sense after I read it was, of course, you have a surplus of grain, you need to figure out some way to store it, and so whiskey becomes a storage mechanism for, for maintaining your wealth. For value, uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, well, which, which can lead to a rebellion of its own. And that gets us to the whiskey rebellion. And I, but I thought it would be a lot of fun to anchor the whole book kind of in the whiskey rebellion, which we define as this battle between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson sort of to define the soul of American business. So you have all of these frontiersmen. We have everyone uh, making all kinds of, of, of spirits. You've got these frontiersmen and they have, you know, they have poor access to, to cash currency and they're using it as a way to store the value of their grains and in order to pay for the Revolutionary War, Alexander Hamilton designs this whiskey tax. And he bases it on similar taxes that um, the, the British had, had, had imposed. And it's an unfair tax in that it favored larger producers on the East Coast. Um, you know, this kind of idea that we attach to Alexander Hamilton today as being a champion of you know, big business. Um, these big consolidated producers on the East Coast, the tax, the tax favors them. Um, because it only taxes, it taxes exactly what they produce um, because they're easy to monitor. These frontier distillers, the tax is levied based on the capacity of their stills, you know, assuming that they run full time. So it's unequal. The frontiersmen are paying a slightly disproportionate amount, which is essentially taxing their income. So, you know, they rise up 
and the tax really was a symbol for so many things that were so much that were that were much bigger. I mean, they saw it as we're losing control to the Eastern Seaboard to these finance men. Uh, they also had lots of other industries that were were going this way that were being being bought out by the by the East, um, and so they rise up to protest this tax. And George Washington sends thirteen thousand troops out. He quashes the rebellion. In the meantime, when he does it, he has also helped bolster the value of land investments he has made in the Western Territory by 50%. You know, so it's this other kind of great story of business. Ironically, George Washington was himself the biggest distiller um, of the time. He didn't like the product, which I thought was kind of interesting. He didn't really drink it himself. It was kind of a, it was kind of a humble thing. It was a kind of a you know, blue-collar, kind of a lowly, a lowly drink. Um, and that really gets us to this subplot we have in the whole book where you've got you know, big versus small. Whiskey Rebellion is squashed. Jefferson comes into office, you know, a little while later, and he gets rid of the tax. And for the next 50 or so years, you kind of have this Jeffersonian vision of America, you know, one of thousands of stills, uh, fall, small farmers, you know, these stills are puffing away across the countryside. And, you know, you've got thousands of them. But then over the course of the next 200 years, you see this industry consolidating until you get to the year 2000. And Hamilton's vision really won. Um, You've got eight companies with 13 plants making about 99% of all the whiskey in the country. And what really fascinated me, though, is, you know, you go to the liquor store, and that's not what you see. Yes, indeed. You You see see all these small distillers, or do you? You see, yeah, you see hundreds of different labels. And I think the average consumer, and I would ask a lot of average consumers about this, a lot of them kind of get the impression that, you know, there's an independent entity attached to each one of those labels. And a lot of times when you point out otherwise, they kind of get mad at you. They don't like, oh, thank you. You know, like it's more like you've punctured this idea that they have that their brand, which they identify with, is some small, small independent business devoted to craft. And you're like, no, no, it's coming from one of eight companies. And they either you know, sell it in a different label or, you know, they work very hard to make themselves look small. In a lot of cases, they sell it to these independent marketers who just create the label and then, you know, sell it. And a lot of people feel duped by that. You know, like I've, I've really, you know, I, you get very strong reactions to it. They're like, what? Like I'm being lied. It's not what exactly what I thought it was. But I didn't really think the story ended there. To me, where the story ended was those companies actually do a very good job. They, you know, whiskey isn't like its counterparts in the beer industry. Um, you know, they use their size a lot of times to their advantage in the form of, you know, economies of scale. Um, whiskey is an industrial product. I mean, when you're making it, you're blasting it through a still. It's a very industrial process. There's a lot of ad- advantages to being big. And that fascinated me because it kind of runs counter to a lot of our popular notions about food, especially food politics today. You know, we're small, you know, we're reflexively, it's like small is always best. In a lot of cases, it is. But whiskey is this kind of weird weird cutout to that rule in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm not saying that to, to slight today's craft movement. Um, you know, there's a lot of potential that it has and a lot of things I think it's going to offer to the industry. But I was looking at this as an economic story too. You know, let's really get into whiskey and what makes it good. And in a lot of ways, it's very contrarian. It kind of upends our traditional notions that we, we have a lot about a lot of our foods. Um, so I thought by tracing 
the history of this industry and looking at all these consolidation battles and these big business figures who in many cases were quite ruthless and cutthroat. Um, there's just a fun way to look at that whole story because it's a story that parallels a lot of other industries in America, be it steel, you know, the automotive industry. Um, you know, we were just talking with someone yesterday about radio stations. You know, it used to be tons of local DJs and you would drive across the nation and hear regional hits. And today it's, you know, like the central planning committee. It's just one of them picking the 10 hits for the entire nation. And I was like, you know, in the, same consolidation story we have for so many industries has also affected whiskey. And, you know, we've lost a lot of the variety, although we're not presented with a bad product. Um, it's just a little bit more of a narrow product. And so that, that, that opened up another story to explore, too. I, I had that very reaction to the book as an average drinker with whiskey and, you know, a, a self-professed foodie. I found myself reading to my wife, oh, my God, you, you, you don't realize what's happening with our, our bullet bourbon, with our American, you know, Buffalo Trace. And, and, you know, she was outraged along with me. She was very supportive. Um, but this, this redemptive story that you tell, I just want to highlight for listeners that you also make that argument about flavor, that uh, small batch in the case of whiskey does not necessarily mean better flavor, that it's really about the, the quality and skill of the distiller and not about the scale on which it's produced. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because we, we get into all those terms like small batch. And it's so funny to me, the word small at this point, it's just like there's so much marketing power in that. It's just you put the word small on it, and there you go. Like that's all you need. It's like back in the 90s, remember there's a lot of debate about the word organic. And you could just put – you can make the box green and then just put it out there and charge an extra 20%. You know, It was kind of – you know, there's a lot of these I think important debates to have about some of the, the terminology. Small batch, craft, artisanal, like these terms are kind of open-ended. They're not regulated. They're not defined. Anyone can use them any way they see fit. And with whiskey, there is this weird little thing where – well, it's an – industry um you know it's an agricultural product it's grains growing in fields but there's a great industrial revolution story about you know you look at the history of a couple of different countries united states included um you know the uk you've got russia and you had big gluts of drinking right before these countries industrialized because they had too much manpower pooled in this one part of the economy, this agrarian part of the economy, and there were lots of surplus spirits. And you actually had a lot of drunkenness um, you know, resulting from this. And so I was like, we use the transition of America from an agrarian place to a more industrial place. To all, you know, I try to do that through the story of drinking habits um, because it's something that you see reflected in, in a lot of places um, as they transition from a grain to industrial economies. Well, so, so there's this curious moment in American history we've got to ask about, you know, speaking of drinking habits, uh, because you give this great portrait of, of kind of uh, America as a drunken country throughout much of its history. And yeah. then prohibition comes along, which seems like this counterintuitive moment uh, for armchair historians. So so how does whiskey play out at, at that crucial moment? I mean, you know, it's hard as a, a, you know, as someone with an ear for language not to hear boardwalk empire kind of echoing around in bourbon empire. Um, so we get this yeah. kind of portrait of, well, are we going to see what's going on with prohibition? What about that moment in our history? Yeah, you know, that's a great point. It's... Um... You know, I remember as a kid growing up, you almost think 
the prohibition happened because we were a very prim and proper kind of nation, you know, that it was like reacting again. And you realize it's because we actually really weren't a very prim and proper nation at all. We were, you know, roaring drunk and that, that was this reaction to a lot of things. I mean, it was a reaction to, you know, immigrants coming into the nation, a lot of, you know, changes. Prohibition was put forward largely. Um, it started in Ohio. These Protestant states were reacting to a lot of, you know, Catholic immigrants coming in and all these other changes. So we, we, we look at that. And then when it actually happens, prohibition, the way it changes the industry I thought was fascinating because this comes back to the story of Jefferson versus Hamilton. And it was a decisive victory for the Hamiltonians. Um, when you outlaw all whiskey making, all, all alcohol making, um, you've got just a few companies that are holding on by a thread and they're buying up their competing brands, um, buying up, you know, competing stocks of alcohol. And when you emerge, the number of distilleries is much smaller after prohibition than it was before. And out of that, you had these four companies, uh, Shenley, Seagram, Hiram Walker and National, which None of them really exist anymore under those names, but they, you know, they've all been kind of absorbed into each other and broken off you know, and everything. But that's the beginning of you know, the eight companies they have today making 99% of it. You've got this big four, and they came to control about 75% of the liquor trade in this country. And they were a constant target of the United States Justice Department. And there are all these delicious ironies with this story. There was a brief period where FDR decided – Okay, in order to get the economy jump started again, you know, we're going to use alcohol. That was part of the push for for appeal. And you know, he's got the National Industrial Recovery Act, and he allowed a lot of industries to basically work as monopolies. Like, look, you can control the prices, everything, blah blah blah, just as long as you get as many people working and it generates tax revenue. And the the liquor industry was was part of this. So, so you know, you've got these rules laid down in place where the government. You know, here's an industry it really couldn't control before. It, it attempted to form cartels. You had all these scandals. It was very corrupt. And now they're helping the industry consolidate in a way so that they can kind of control it. The United States government can kind of control it. And, um, you know, they take it, you know, full bore. And then a couple years later, the National Industrial Recovery Act, you know, sort of lifted. And, you know, the government has kind of given the, you know, given the industry free reign and then immediately it sends the Justice Department in to start cracking down on, you know, it being a monopoly. <laughs> so it's kind of almost this carnival of, you know, okay, you can kind of, you know, you're exempt from the rules. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're putting the rules back in place and now we're going to, you know, come after you. <laughs> so there's all these kind of great, kind of funny, sort of ironic stories. That I think, you know, speak a lot to American history, just great little insights into the country's development. Yeah, if you had those kinds of reversals in a novel, no one would believe the novel. Uh, but <laughs> suddenly history kind of makes it work. Uh, it would be absurd, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, it would be mythic, um, which is something you're, you're very interested in. You're kind of – even as you give us the real story of whiskey, you're always interested in seeing what, what are the myths that rise alongside it and you know, the way that whiskey wants to portray itself or the way Americans want to see it portrayed. Um, as much as, you know, what's actually going on there with the industry. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, as I, you know, I said before, it's, it's that mirror we like to kind of prop up and you see all the frontier pictures and what do those mean? It's like frontier practicality, you know, guts, it's like we're tough, you know, that, that kind of thing. 
And, you know, a little thing that I discovered when I was researching this book, it was one of those kind of delightful discoveries you have is, you know, the writer Nora Ephron, she wrote When Harry Met Sally and sure um, something about her neck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful writer. And before she was famous in the 70s, found this article about her, uh, by her about the whiskey industry. And she'd apparently spent three years researching the history of this industry and it never got published. She returned her advance to her publisher. Um, I did briefly kind of reach out to the family, but they didn't really have much information about it. But in one of these profiles, she had kind of described this story almost it was a very Godfather 2-ish the way she and she was very funny you know, in describing them. She was like, you know, watching these gangsters basically during Prohibition build all these distribution networks, et cetera, et cetera. And then a, a generation later, all their Harvard-educated sons are running it. You know, and it was kind of this it was kind of there's very much, you know, a Michael Corleone story in there that I thought was you know, that I thought was kind of funny. Um, it was sad to see that you know she didn't actually write her book, but in a way too, I was glad to kind of have the material myself to explore. <laughs> it's always a relief when there's not a really great book on the subject that you want yeah, already written, right? You're like, oh, well, she would have done it. She would have done it great. There you go. Well, so so there are the, these myths that surround it, and you do a great job of contextualizing those in terms of the actual history of advertising and kind of the Madison Avenue boom. Um, but there's also, as you note towards the end of the book, as you move toward the present and, and future of whiskey, right now there is this revival, this interest in whiskey um, as as a focus. What, what makes what makes whiskey something we want as a country right now that we're fascinated with? You know, there's a few different answers to that, but the one I really like the most is, I mean, every generation I think likes to say like, "Oh, we live in confusing times." I mean, when have times not been confusing? You know? <laughs> yes, I think the the Greeks and the Romans said that. Oh, <laughs> right, right. Like everyone, everyone's always saying times are confusing. Times are confusing. And in the beginning of the book, I kind of peg it to that. I'm like, when you look at this product, it sells itself so heavily on heritage, authenticity, the past. You know, there's a lot of history, all of these stories, and there's a long history of people with whiskey making these fake stories to make themselves seem older. You know, it's not like vodka where it's like always stories of new or it's a new, you know, it's like the newness sells, you know, with whiskey, it's like, we always want it old. And I, in the beginning of the book, you know, explore a little bit. Well, you know, right now we are in another kind of confusing time, but it's kind of confusing in its own unique way in that politically, you know, we've got political leaders on both sides, you know, they're products of the meritocracy. So that's, that's a good thing, but we're also locked in kind of this political gridlock that seems particularly bad. Economically, we've got all these new changes with you know technology that have created all these interesting new industries, but it's also you know left inequality in its wake. So that's something that's a little unsettling. You know, and also socially, you know, we've got technology connecting us in wonderful ways, but in a way, it's also kind of disconnecting us. You know, I think we make the joke: people, you go to a restaurant today and you see a whole family and everyone's staring at their phones. And I was like, whiskey being connected to the past. I think we reflexively think of it as being a simple product connected to a simpler time. The frontier certainly wasn't a simpler time. I think it's probably actually much more stressful. <laughs> but you know, we see it that way. We, we you know, rose-colored glasses, and so. I wonder if we've kind of turned back to whiskey because we were traditionally, you know, drank a lot of whiskey in this country. 
um, as a way almost to go back to that place that we're now thinking of as being a refuge of sorts. Um, and the other reason, so that's like kind of the first reason. It's certainly easy to feel nostalgic after a whiskey or two. Right. You know, it, it's like it's, it's got built-in nostalgia. But the other thing is, you know, we always kind of reject the conditions we inherit a little bit, I think. And whiskey, which was so popular in this country, fell out of popularity starting in the 60s and 70s as drinkers, baby boomers, started to reject it. I, you know, they associated it with you know, old men, um, the past. It was kind of a fuddy drink, you know, kind of unpopular. They turned to vodka, spritzers, wine coolers. You know, this was a subversive way to kind of stick it to the man, stick it to the prior generation. Um, and that's when you see whiskey sales in this country just just plummet, um, you know, as we as we kind of moved on. And now, you know, what's old is new and it's kind of trendy again in the way that we rescue old fashions and that, you know, in that way where, you know, people are wearing – you know, fedoras and things like that. We rescue these old things that at one point were seen as kind of, you know, a little nerdy or just a little, little, little old. And so it's kind of come back into popularity. And that causes me, I don't have the answer to this question, but are we seeing it as a trend that itself will just peter out again in a few years? It's a faddish or is it a return to the normal? Because for, you know, for a huge stretch of American history, we did drink so much of it. So is this a return to normal? Or is this just kind of a faddish thing? And I think the companies right now are desperately trying to, you know, figure that out. They're producing at full blast, but it's hard for them as an industry because it takes the better part of a decade to make this product. It ages for, you know, in, in barrels, and you know, it's hard to predict six, seven, eight years down the line what demand is going to be. And that traditionally has always been a big, a big problem for it. I like the idea that that America might just be finding and restoring its its lost long term self uh, in in a glass of, of whiskey. Um, yeah, I, I think as, as someone who's a listener who who might have a casual interest in this drink or perhaps be an enthusiast, um, it feels like it, it wouldn't be right though. As much as we're talking about America's drink, if I didn't ask you about Kentucky and the kind of regionality of bourbon and its association, and you do some some nice work of, of talking about, you know, Scotch and Scotland and Sir Walter Scott. And, and here we have, it seems like, you know, the, this little niche of the country um, that seems the heart of bourbon itself. Yeah, you know, 95% of bourbon is made in Kentucky. It doesn't have to be made in Kentucky. That's kind of a popular myth. Um, that 1964 resolution states, you know, it has to be made within the borders of the United States. But the industry is consolidated in Kentucky. And in the past, you know, you had a lot of bourbons coming from other places. Um, some of the historians I talked to in Kentucky would, you know, stress, look, it was coming from Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, you know, Pennsylvania, produced some wonderful bourbons. And we wrap Kentucky a little bit into this consolidation story, which gets a little bit to the, you know, history is written by the winners story, too. Um, <laughs> the biggest spirits producer in America up until Prohibition was Peoria. Now, they weren't. Peoria wasn't making, you know, what we would think of today as, you know, these really high quality straight bourbons and ryes. A lot of times they were making neutral grain spirits that were used as a, as a base kind of as a base that you just mix in a little bit of a high quality product in um, you know, for a very cheap kind of whiskey. Um, but still, it was this huge spirits producer and it, um, you know, Peoria was. 
And you would see these very frustrated editorials in some of the trade publications. Like, well, why don't we have the reputation of Kentucky? You know, why don't we like, and there were, people were very like, why, you know, and they oftentimes weren't making a very good product, but there were a lot of these same kind of producers also in Kentucky, which is another part of the story that, you know, Louisville actually was had more rectifying, which is what, what you call that making the, the cheaper base spirits part of the industry than a lot of straight producers. So, you know, and during the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, you actually had Kentucky politicians arguing against regulations to protect the higher quality form of the product because they're trying to protect, you know, the vested interests in their states making a cheaper version of it. That's but, great. Yeah, you know, and, but Kentucky has captured the, you know, the imagination and it is where the industry is today consolidated. And that's where, you know, so many of these distilleries now sit. Um, you know, and they've just kind of, you know, they've reimagined the story as one where they're always fighting against the grain and, and that and that sort of thing to always make it quality. And they do they do make a quality product. They do make a quality product today. Um, and I love going there and exploring and wandering around. Well, you know, you I, I've read a couple of interviews, of course, in preparing for this one with you, and you've been very politic about not recommending specific brands and not entering into the the kind of bourbon tasting wars and everything like that. But I, I think for listeners, I, I have to ask though, what kind of recommendation recommendations do you have someone who's from someone who's so thoroughly immersed in the history and and that's one of the appeals of the book, right? Is suddenly you have this tremendous story behind what's in your glass. Um, right. Where should where should we go spelunking if we head down to Kentucky or if we head <laughs> to our local liquor store? What would you recommend? Well, so in the book, you kind of take this fun populist stance a little bit where, you know, in the history of this industry, there's a little subplot. And it's about the producers of this product having on their hands a very simple product. You know, it's just some grains that are fermented and distilled and thrown in a barrel. Um, You know, I describe the quote-unquote perfect bourbon as being a little bit like the perfect peach in that, you know, it's not that complicated. It's just, it's a simple thing. But this there's a subplot in the story of this spirit you know, of a sweet little hustle of people trying to find ways to convince you to pay more for it, <laughs> you know? So we'll throw it in a fancier glass bottle or we'll throw those terms we were just discussing like artisanal or, you know, small batch or craft or whatever onto the bottle. I'm like, with bourbon, you know, older's not better. A lot of distillers, you know, would tell me I'm between six and 12 years, depending on variances and aging conditions. Um, so I look at a lot of these kind of stalwart old brands. I think I think I disappoint a lot of people. Um, they ask me, like, what's your favorite? What are you looking for? And they expect some very esoteric answer. Like, I've been to the mountaintop and there was a guy there with this really old beard and he handed me this glowing bottle of some brand you've never heard of. And I'm about I'm about to, you know, let you know, let you in on this little secret. And I just kind of shrug and I'm like, you know, Evan Williams, single barrel, wild turkey, one, you know, these kind of very like simple. I'm like, I'm like, I really, really have a, there's a special place in my heart for those brands. They just, they deliver on value. You know? So if you look at them almost philosophically, they kind of, they really, they really hit some kind of ideal for me with this product. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to shell out tons of money to get the best, you know, you don't have to, you know have secret connections at the liquor store. It's always just there and it's always you know, sort of available. So that's kind of what I look for. I look for that. And more and more, I'm trying to look for brands that are very, very transparent. Um, 
I, you know, I have this little secret fantasy that whiskey will become a little more like the wine world where, you know, winemakers love to tell you what side of the hill the grapes grew on and what the minerality content of the soil, all these geeky details that help you as a connoisseur kind of develop your palate and learn and have fun with this stuff. But whiskey across the board, big or small, you know, a lot of producers still just love to rely on a story. Um, and, you know, some of these folks, you know, like Bullet and other brands, you know, they've kind of said, you know, they've said, it's not the liquid that matters. It's the story. They know that it's these stories that really create the connect that people, that people really connect with really more so than the product. But I look at some of these brands that are just putting these fantastic stories in the bottle with no information whatsoever about the product. And you've got, you know, a lot of debate about this in whiskey, but I look at the brands now that are letting you know all those geeky details, what you know, their ingredients were, how long they aged it for, what size the barrel, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I really like to see more of that. And I try to kind of promote those brands that are the most forthcoming about what they're really putting in their bottles and giving you those geeky details. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I think what your book gives us is is sort of the grand story in which we can make sense of all these stories. So now comes the fun so. of tasting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that you're you're still writing some interesting pieces uh, about bourbon. There was a new one that came out in The Atlantic that's fascinating about the, the uh, kind of Jewish origins of Kentucky whiskey. Um, is, your, is your trajectory forward from here going to be onward with bourbon or are you moving in a new direction? Oh, as far as writing? Yeah. No, I- a new direction. Um, yeah, like, and that was, well, you know, it's interesting when you're doing research for a book like this, you know, you find yourself in these archives. And I spent a lot of time going through old, old magazines, you know, and old newspapers. Um, I was living in Washington, D.C., so I'm always, you know, I was always in the Library of Congress. And that is probably the most fun part of this. To me, it's as fun as taking trips and things like that. And you're just reading through all these old night and all these little wormholes into history are kind of opening up and all these old stories that are very still kind of seem oddly relevant today. Um, and you see so many ideas for other things to write on just on all kinds of, all kinds of completely unrelated issues, things you had no idea about. Um, so I'd always kind of, you know, make little lists as I went through and, you know, all, like, for instance, you know, one story I'm probably not going to write on, but when you're looking up information on bourbon, you, all kinds of information pops up about the bourbon monarchy in France. You know, and they were exiled and, you know, they were they, you know, ended up in Spain. And they're kind of like a society family. And, you know, over a course of 100 years, I'd see all these just really just outrageous stories about, you know, the bourbon monarchs who are still alive and well today living in places like Monaco, you know, and you'd come across, you know, so it's like all these little sideline things that I just kind of thought were funny and unique. Um, so I got a lot of ideas for other things to write from, from doing that. But that was, that was a really fun part of the process. Oh, that sounds great. What was your, your favorite discovery when you were in the archives for this book? Uh, well, you know, some of that, um, you know, some of the stuff with the, the bourbon monarchs, um, oh man, you know what? One of my favorite, I was in the rare book room, um, at the library of Congress and I was going through a distilling manual from the late 1700s and this was an actual physical discovery. It wasn't a, uh, a discovery of an idea, but I opened up the pages of this old manual and a hair was right there. And it had that look, you know, when you see pictures of old mummies. I remember once visiting, and I was in Leipzig, Germany, and I visited the home of 
um, Felix Mendelssohn, the composer. Mm. And he had a lock of his hair there and it had that rust color, you know, of, of hair from a dead person. And I remember opening up this book in the rare book reading room and here I am researching old distilling methods and a hair from, I'm going to assume it was an old distiller, you know, kind of drifts out. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, I was dropped the book and it was kind of a, uh, it's kind of a startle. A little, little creepy. <laughs> there you go. You could distill the DNA from that and recreate the, the brewer, the, the, the spirits maker, the, and then you'd have something authentic. It's the next stage in craft, right? You take like the hairs of old brewers and you re- – that could be the story in the bottle. stories. It could be like, we found this old hair and we, we figured out what he preferred and we've distilled that for you. That- something like that. That sounds fantastic. The first sci-fi bourbon of the future. <laughs> right, oh, right. Well, That's the future. That's the future part of the past and future of America's whiskey. <laughs> Reed, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you very much. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Reed Mittenbuehler, author of Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of America's Whiskey on the New Books Network.